You're listening to the Weekly Service Podcast, crowdsourced wisdom to help you reimagine life. Today's storyteller is New Zealand-based writer Jackson Payne. Jackson's story is about the different colours and shapes of family, and in particular, how a motorcycle accident prompted him to become a sperm donor for his friend's kids. From his birth family, Through the different iterations of family that he's helped create, Jackson weaves together personal stories that form a rich tapestry of kinship. There are many stories I could tell about my dad, and they all portray him differently, usually depending on whose perspective they're from. My uncle Jeff would tell you about the sensitive boy he was, how he used to follow his mother around, and how his life changed forever when she died. Aunties might tell you about when in the late 60s and inspired by David Bowie, he wore makeup and snakeskin boots, which my grandfather took exception to and kicked him out of the house. My mum might tell you about when she first caught him shooting heroin when they lived together in Sydney in the 80s. And my brother would tell you about the times we visited dad during the school holidays. We'd go straight to the video store and rent a week's worth of movies, go back to his house, pull the blinds, and stay there until we'd watch them all. And why are these stories important? Like all relationships, my connection to my dad is tethered to them, and others like them. A study on the importance of story and family I read when preparing for today said that the story is like the thread that weaves together a family's past, providing shape and form together with the anticipated future. In my experience, these things happen in very unexpected ways. One of my earliest memories, maybe of my first story, is of the sound of an old typewriter. I was three, I think. My family lived in an A-framed house, at the apex of which was an attic office, the source of the clattering. The only way in was up a ladder through a trap door in the ceiling in the middle of my room. Mum said, don't disturb your dad, he's writing. And for a while I listened. I looked up at the trap door, wanting to see beyond it the sound of the typewriter filling the lower levels of the house with a sense of mystery until I couldn't resist. I climbed the ladder slowly, wanting only to catch a glimpse of my dad. When I was near the top, I waited, the sound of those metal keys thwacking into the paper, and I carefully lifted the trapdoor. There he was, framed by a triangular window, a loose white shirt unbuttoned halfway down his chest, his brow pressed together in concentration. Hello, he said. I ducked down really fast and the trapdoor slammed above me. It's okay, son, he called, and he pulled me onto his lap and started reading to me from pages he was working on. Of course, I don't remember exactly what he was reading, but I know now they were pages from his first book, Staunch. I still flipped through my copy of that book from time to time, but not for the story. In the opening pages, there's a dedication. It reads for Jackson, Tyler, and Jay. About six months after my dad died, I got an email and said, hi, I'm Jay, I'm your sister, but I think you already know that. And I did. For as long as I can remember, I've known about her. I knew she grew up in Australia. I knew she was about 10 years older than me. And I knew she had no idea my dad was her dad or that she had two brothers from New Zealand. But that was all I knew. About six months after that email, I flew to Sydney and spent a few weeks with Jay and her family. I met her friends, her sister, her mum and dad, and in many ways it felt as though we'd always known each other. 
physically, she looked a lot like my dad. And there was an emotional intensity that I was really very intimate with. But of course, there was much more I didn't know. I learned that Jay's mum and my dad met in a record store in Wellington in 1973, and soon after ended up in a relationship. And it wasn't long after that that she discovered dad's heroin addiction, walking into the lounge in a flat they lived in, finding him with a tourniquet around his arm. Despite this, or perhaps because of it, they moved from city to city, always with the promise of sobriety. And during this time, she became pregnant. She and dad eventually moved to Christchurch when my uncle was in the process of opening up a club he was gonna call the Velvet Club, that he wanted dad's help with, though it was definitely not the best environment for an addict. And of course, things turned out as they had done in all the previous places they lived. After Jay's birth, her mum returned to their house to find two of dad's friends passed out in the baby's room and the house a mess. It was, I think, in the end, a fairly simple choice to have a life without my dad. And soon after she left him, she met someone else who adopted Jay with dad's approval. Though I'm not sure what was said about telling her about her biological father. And I'm not sure how Jay found out about her, about me and my brother or my dad. Um, but after she did, we tried to have a relationship. I moved to Sydney for a summer in my early 20s to get to know her. But it was soon very obvious that me being there was a reminder of the things that she could never know about my dad. In my PhD research this year, I came across a trauma theorist, Kathy Carruth, who says, it is always the story of a wound that cries out, that addresses us in an attempt to tell us of a reality or truth that is not otherwise available. It's that very unknown, I think, that made it so difficult for Jay and I to have a relationship. Now here the story changes course a little bit. In 2014, just before New Year's Eve, I was out riding a motorcycle. Well, actually, I was doing my motorcycle license test. Now, I came round a bend a little too quick and had to slam on my brakes. I flew off sideways and the bike tumbled after me, the handlebars crashing into my abdomen. At first I thought I was just winded, but my breath when my breath returned, that winded feeling didn't go away. The ambulance arrived and the, the paramedics thought I just had a broken rib and told me to get up and walk. I told them I couldn't, but they insisted. They helped me to my feet and led me to the ambulance. And when we arrived at the hospital, it was an incredibly busy ED, so they just wheeled me into the, into the corridor because they thought I just had a broken rib, uh, signed the paperwork and, and left me there for a doctor to see me when everyone was ready. It's hard to keep track of time when you're in that much pain, so I'm not exactly sure how long I was there. Um, but uh, as soon as my then girlfriend arrived, I pleaded with her to get me a doctor. As soon as he put the stethoscope to my body, his eyes widened, immediately jabbed me full of morphine and rushed me to the ICU. It turned out it wasn't a broken rib at all, but a collapsed lung and a split left kidney. I was in the ICU for two days and hospital for two weeks. One of my oldest and best friends, Fleur, was the first person to visit. She started crying as soon as she walked in and saw me hooked up to all those machines. It was then I said to her, I'll be the donor for your baby. Now, Fleur and I met when I was 15 in a very small town in New Zealand called Nelson, where I was for boarding school. It was near the end of summer holidays and a friend of mine got me a job at a restaurant where she worked because they needed extra staff for a 
festival they were running. When I arrived, I told I was going to be the, the fish man, which I thought had something to do with actual fish, like packing fish or selling fish, that sort of thing. And after washing some dishes and helping prep the kitchen, the manager said to me, come on, let's go get the costume. I thought he, he, I thought he meant uniform, so I followed him to the car. Now picture for a minute a giant turquoise fish with red and yellow lips, smiling kind of insanely. That was the restaurant's logo, and as it turned out, its mascot. My job for the day as the fish man was more literal than I thought. I had to wear the fish costume and walk up and down the main road, waving at cars, trying to encourage them to come to this festival. Now, it was an incredibly hot day and there was no ventilation in this costume, so after about half an hour, I went to this shaded area beside the restaurant where staff took their breaks. I sat there gulping in air and trying to drink enough water to survive another trip in the suit. And that was when I first met Fleur, who was also taking a break. I remember her orange t-shirt, her strawberry blonde hair, and her square frame black glasses. I don't remember what she said, rather what we said to each other, or if we said anything at all. But I've since come to learn that most of life's important moments happen without us realizing their importance until much later. Especially when you're sitting next to a giant paper mache fish you're soon to put back on. My relationship was, with Fleur has taken on many iterations. She was the best friend of my first ever girlfriend. At the start of university, we became drinking buddies. We were flatmates for a time. And when I moved to Melbourne, she was the first person I reached out to, since becoming one of my closest friends. But most recently, and definitely most importantly, I've been the donor for her and her partner, Abra's children. In 2014, the two of them arrived back to Melbourne after a couple of years of living in North America. The three of us went out for a drink and it was at a small bar somewhere in Collingwood they first told me they wanted to have children. They were, they said, looking for a friend to be the donor. My first thought was, how does that work? My second thought was, I'll do it. But of course, I didn't say that. Not right away. I didn't have any reservations about being a donor for Fleur and Abra. In fact, it immediately felt like the, the right thing to do. But of course, there was a lot I needed to consider. So I took the idea to my friends who asked some very good questions, like, what if it changes your relationship to Fleur and Abra? Which I replied, it probably would, but for the better. And what, would, what will your role be with the child in the child's life? I said, if I was to be a donor, it would be without any of my own expectations. Definitely not as a parent. Another question was, what if you have a stronger attachment to he or she once, she's born, once they're born? They said, of course, there was no way of knowing this, but only how I would prepare for it. And one question came up a few times that I was surprised about and immediately dismissive of, which was, what if a future partner has difficulty with the fact you're a donor? But one thing that did occupy me a lot during this time was my half-sister, Jay. It had been a few years since we'd been in touch and I couldn't help but see some parallels with my role as a possible donor with who my dad was with her. Was I repeating his mistakes? Of course, I knew I wouldn't be the father, but Fleur and Abba would definitely be the parents. And there would be no secrecy, no gaps, nothing unknown. And in the end, it was these very important differences and my strong relationships with Fleur and Abra that dispelled any concerns. After I recovered from the motorcycle accident, I told Fleur and Abra it wasn't the morphine talking that, like, yes, I will be the donor for your baby. 
but of course that was just the beginning. We needed to define the space and my role, understand how we all felt and what we wanted. So we attended some Rainbow families meetings and heard the stories of donor children and their various relationships. There was, it seemed, no constant, no rules, and certainly no singular definition. I consulted literature, of which I was surprised at the dearth of material about donors who remained in the lives of the children they helped conceive. Um, and the three of us discussed a contract and looked at some examples, but there never really seemed to be anything that truly captured our own um, special situation. And one of the final steps was that we all went to a psychologist together, after which we decided that we were ready. Brad decided against IVF in favor of an at-home method. Of course, I, I can't speak to their experiences of that, but I can share a little bit of what it was like for me. Now, when, when, when Fleur was ovulating, we would set a time, usually just before bed, for about four or, not, four or five nights in a row. Fleur and Abra would sit in the car at the front of my apartment and wait for me to send them a text message. You'd be surprised <laughs> how hard it is to get it done when your friends sitting outside your apartment know exactly what you're doing. But when I was finished and dressed, the little container secured, I'd send them a text message and say, I'm done. And a few minutes later, there'd be a knock at my door behind which Admiral would be. I'd be a little bit sweaty and embarrassed. And we would have a, a conversation like it was totally normal. I had in my hand a container of sperm that I was about to give her. We'd go something like, hey, how was your day? Really good, thanks. I had some good outcomes with my clients. Oh, I was stuck in the studio for a while, but it was okay. Well. Good luck, bye. And in the end, it took two rounds of ovulation for Fleur to get pregnant. And Atel was born at the end of 2016. I have a picture of her the first time I held her. I'm sitting deep in a couch, almost lying down, and my arms cradle her on my chest. Her tiny hands are scrunched into balls beneath her, and her eyes are closed. She's asleep. I look at it from time to time, try to remember what it was I was feeling that day. Not because I've forgotten or that it was overwhelming, but because it was the moment I told myself I would know exactly how it was I did feel. And in that moment, I had an immediate connection with the towel, but not in a paternal way, something much different than that that I haven't quite figured out how to describe here. And likewise with their second child, Kataj, who was born earlier this year. Now, like all good stories, um, I'll end this one on a bit of an ambiguous note. Last year, I moved in with my mum for the first time since I was a teenager. I was waiting to hear back from some doctoral program, programs, so it was a good time to spend some time with my family before possibly leaving New Zealand again. And it was a good decade and a half since I'd last lived with my mum. And it seemed like it co coincided with when all of my friends were getting married and having children, buying houses, that sort of thing. And at the time, I, I text my very good friend, James, and I said, I'm 33 and single and living with my mum. And he, he tried to do his best to downplay any concern, but he later told me he was actually very worried. <laughs> but a week later, I met Victoria. And just five months after that, it was my great good fortune to marry her in the Wellington Botanic Gardens. 
She is an intensely generous person. She's absolutely committed to her friends and family. And she has a laugh that just cuts right through me. But of course, like all relationships, it hasn't been easy. Hasn't been always easy, I should say. My role as a donor, a choice I made long before I met Victoria, has definitely affected things. This is not to say she's opposed to it. It's quite the opposite. The difficulty for her, as I understand it, is the unknown. What is her role in this family that I'm a part of, but not a member of? Will my role change over time? And how will my being a donor affect our future children? These are things I can't answer, of course, but whatever the answers are, I'm sure they'll make for some good stories. Thank you.